So let me tell you that you will not regret the time spent on board my vessel. You are going to travel through a wonderland. Astonishment and stupefaction will probably be your normal state of mind. You will not easily become blasé about the sights continually offered to your eyes. I am going to embark on a new underwater tour of the world. Who knows, perhaps the last, and revisit everything I have studied on my many travels and you will be my study companion. Starting today, you will enter a new element. You will see what no man has ever seen before, for my men and I no longer count, and our planet, through my efforts, will deliver up its last secrets. That was Captain Nemo from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Welcome back to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. As we take a deep dive into everything the world of medical oncology has to offer. A rapidly evolving beast that is difficult to tame at the best of times and may never truly be conquered. Before we begin this episode, I would love to welcome back my co-host and adventure companion, Pierre Aranax. I mean, Dr. Michael Fernando. How are you, Michael? I'm good, Josh. Truly, you are proving yourself a man of culture and taste. And oncology is very much like Jules Verne's giant squid. Exactly. And, of course, our co-adventurer and compatriot, Mr. Ned Land, also known as Dr. Andrew Jensen. How are you, Andrew? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, thanks for uh, bringing me back onto the podcast. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks for coming along for our weird and wonderful introductions. So today we have another exciting episode with a focus on oligometastatic colorectal cancer. Michael will be discussing the Olivia trial and Andrew will be discussing the phase three trial from 2007 called the Nord-Ovest trial. But before we do, I'd love to talk a little bit about metastatic colorectal cancer. So colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer worldwide with 1.1 million new cases per year and is the second leading cause of cancer death. It occurs predominantly in higher income countries with significant variations in its incidence globally. There are multiple risk factors, including alcohol intake, tobacco use, obesity, and dietary patterns, such as diets low on fruits, vegetables, and unrefined plant foods, and those high in red meat, processed foods, and fat. Approximately 15 to 30% of the patients will present with metastases, and 20 to 50% of those with initially localized disease will develop METs. The most common location, I will open this to the floor, where are the most common locations that colorectal cancer will metastasize to? The liver is the most common viscera, I believe. You are correct. And we can't forget the lung, the peritoneum, and of course, lymph nodes. The majority of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer cannot be cured, although a subset of patients with liver and or lung isolated metastatic disease with local recurrence or limited intra-abdominal disease are potentially curable with surgery. For other patients with metastatic colorectal disease, treatment is purely palliative and generally consists of systemic chemotherapy. The last 20 years have seen major advances in the metastatic field, 
in the era of fluorouracil, which was the sole active ingredient, and overall survival in phase three trials back in the day was about 11 to 12 months. In the modern era, the average mean survival duration is now approaching three years. And five-year survival rate is as high as 20% in some trials treated with chemotherapy alone. So you might be asking yourself, why are we talking about oligometastatic disease? And the answer, it's controversial. (laughs) I think, Michael, would you like to start with your article today, which I believe is Olivia, with a twist and a little bit of sprinkle of some other trials? Absolutely. Olivia with a twist. It sounds like a drink that an off-brand James Bond will order. But thank you for that introduction, Josh. And you very much did hint that the potentially resectable or borderline resectable space in colorectal cancer is one that is awash with conflicting data and controversy. The rationale is probably the only thing that is uncontroversial in that chemotherapy we know can downsize metastases and facilitate secondary, and by secondary I mean non-upfront, resection. This would theoretically render a patient who in previous uh, eras of oncology would have been treated with palliative intent, cancer-free. Olivia was published in 2016. And at the time of publication, there was no standard of care treatment for patients with potentially resectable liver metastases. Other studies that have looked at this space before and since include the EORTC 40983 from 2013, uh, the new EPOC trial, which included cetuximab and found that cetuximab addition with uh, perioperative chemotherapy actually uh, was inferior to chemotherapy alone. And the JCOG 0603, also from 2020, uh, which demonstrated that surgery followed by Folfox demonstrated a higher DFS, that's disease-free survival rate, but numerically a lower overall survival versus hepatectomy alone at five years. So you can see in this space, it's twists and roundabouts. And Olivia doesn't solve that problem so much as add to the confusion. So first off, we will say that Unlike most of the studies we have on oncology for the inquisitive mind, Olivia is not a massive international multi-centre phase three randomised control trial with three million patients and hazard ratios of 0.2. It's a very, very small phase two open label study that only enrolled 80 patients. But because it is part of the puzzle and quite illustrative of the problems we've decided to focus on this particular study. So the treatment that Olivia examined was broken up into two phases, the preoperative and the postoperative chemotherapy. In the preoperative setting, patients were randomly assigned one-to-one to to receive bevacizumab plus modified Folfox-6 or bevacizumab plus Folfoxiri. The chemotherapy cycle before the time of resection was given without bevacizumab. Patients were assessed every six weeks and preoperatively within four weeks of surgery using a CT or MRI and surgery took place when the liver disease was deemed potentially resectable. In the post-operative setting, patients with an R0 or R1 resection resumed study treatment of eight additional cycles starting four to six weeks after surgery and after complete wound healing. Patients with residual disease and unresected patients continued study treatment until disease progression, unacceptable toxicity, or patient refusal. 
Before I go any further, I will just make a slight note about some of the terms that we'll be throwing around in this episode, uh, specifically the definitions of resection success, I guess. So the residual disease uh, schema involves three tiers, uh, R0, R1, and R2. And in very simple terms, R0 refers to a complete excision of the tumour with no residual disease. R1 is resection of the tumour with microscopic residual disease. And R2 is uh, resection of the tumour with macroscopic residual disease. So bear that in mind when we talk about these studies. So patients uh, who were enrolled on Olivia were patients who had previously untreated, upfront, unresectable colorectal cancer with METs confined to the liver. So as Josh mentioned, many patients with colorectal cancer also have lung metastases, but they would have been excluded from this trial. The criteria for unresectability is not something that has really ever been standardised, but the Olivia authors came up with their own criteria for uh, unresectability, and patients had to have one or more of the following to count as unresectable. They had to have no possibility of an upfront R0 or R1 resection. The assessment of a resection leaving less than 30% of the residual liver volume or metastases in contact with major vessels of a liver remnant. Other inclusion criteria, the only other major one was that they had to be COG performance status of 0 to 1. Exclusion criteria included neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy within six months before randomization, and as mentioned before, extrahepatic disease. The primary endpoint was the overall resection rate, either R0, R1, or R2. The secondary endpoints were objective response rate, time to response, histopathological response rate, progression-free survival, relapse-free survival, overall survival, and surgical safety. So they're looking at a lot of questions here. One important thing to note is that the tumour assessments, as mentioned before, were carried out every six weeks, but the modality was left to the assessor. There was no standardisation of whether patients received CT scans or MRIs. And at a practical level, I can understand that, given that not every centre has access to an MRI. However, this is a potential source of error in that MRIs might sharpen the uh, border between resectable and unresectable disease. I won't belabor the demographics too much, but a couple of differences were noted between the two groups. The Folfoxiri group were mostly male, ECOG0 with greater than three metastatic lesions, most commonly diagnosed as de novo metastatic disease, and with the primary tumour in situ. The differences between the Folfoxiri and the Folfox group is that the Folfox group was actually mostly female, slightly younger, and on average uh, had a lower ECOG, so a greater proportion of patients were ECOG0. So now we come to the results, and it's important to note right off the bat that because of the small numbers, no statistical comparisons were made. So what you can actually take away from this study is limited, but again, it is part of a greater whole and a greater question. The median time to resection was the same uh, across both groups uh, at 4.3 months, and a little over half of the total number of patients, 80 patients, proceeded to resection. So in the Folfox series group, 25 patients proceeded to resection, and in the Folfox group, 19 patients proceeded to resection. The overall resection rate was 61% versus 49%, 
and the R0 resection rate was 54 versus 31%. The objective response rate was 81 versus 62%, favouring Folfoxiri. The median time to response was the same at 3.1 months in both arms. Interestingly, the histopathological response, defined as a complete or major response in the, in the resected tumour, actually favoured the Folfox group at 52 in the Folfox series group versus 57% in the Folfox group. However, these are very, very small numbers. If we look at the raw numbers uh, in the Folfox series group, 11 patients out of 21 uh, had a complete or major response, and 8 out of 14 patients in the Folfox group had a complete or major response. The median progression-free survival was longer in the Folfox series group with 18.6 months versus 11.5 months with a hazard ratio of 0.43. And the median relapse-free survival again favoured the Folfox series group at 17 months versus 8 months with a hazard ratio of 0.31. The overall survival, interestingly, was not reached in the Folfox series group, but I could not uh, find any updated overall survival data for this study. The toxicity, as we expected, was higher in the Folfoxiri group. I don't think we necessarily need to go through the nitty-gritty of that. We know Folfoxiri, uh, the trade-off for potentially higher efficacy is greater toxicity. It is worth noting that the surgical safety population, and these are the patients who actually proceeded to resection, all-grade surgery-related events were reported in 60% in the Folfoxiri group, and 79% in the Folfox 6 group. There were no anastomotic leaks observed after the resection of the primary tumour, which is obviously a major concern with bevacizumab. So, again, this is a part of a greater and very confusing question. If we look at the numbers, leaving aside the fact that, you, that no statistical comparisons were made because it's a very small study... Folfoxiri plus bevacizumab does appear to increase rates of R0 resection and overall response rate. Michael, that was a nice summary of what, as you said, is quite a limited study, but does add to the body of evidence to continue a conversation about what's the best way to manage oligometastatic colorectal cancer. I did have a question and take aside the non-statistical analysis of this study. Does it raise a bit of concern when it looks like when you are dividing patients into two potential arms, when one is predominantly male and one is predominantly female? I think it raises questions, certainly, Josh. I mean, when you're, when you're creating a study like this, as anyone who has read any number of studies will say, you want both arms to be balanced in terms of demographics. Now, I can't say with any confidence about the specific differences and the effect that it might have on outcomes between men and women who are receiving this type of treatment. But again, you do want to try and control for any variables, both seen and unseen. And I would say that the differences in gender between the two arms in that the Folfoxiri group was predominantly male... The Folfox group actually had a majority of women. I don't know if this was some sort of selection bias or if it was completely unintentional, but it does raise potential errors in terms of response rates, tolerance, that sort of thing. But it's not something that I can sort of say specifically as to how it might have affected the study. 
And my other question is this, because I don't want to harp on this study too much, given the limitations we already know. Time from resection to readministration of, I guess, further chemotherapy. From your experience, and I can open this up to the floor, when someone's had a resection of, let's say, a liver met, is there a lot of other evidence to support giving adjuvant therapy in this scenario? Well, I think that that is frequently the standard approach. I mean, as we mentioned, the EORTC study that used uh, modified Folfox-4, which is slightly different to the more commonly used Folfox-6 these days, uh, but it did use basically three months of preoperative Folfox and uh, three months of postoperative Folfox. Potentially, this is gaining inspiration or, uh, or or the other way around. With the perioperative flot used in gastric cancer, you give a bit before, you give a bit after to try and minimise the impact of residual disease post-resection after the initial downstaging. So conceptually, it makes sense. Whether it actually helps the patient, that is a question that remains very much unanswered. Mm, that is a very good, poignant thing to bring up. Michael, whether or not it actually helps the patient. And I think there might still be further research in this area that definitely needs to be done given the incidence of colorectal cancer along with the high mortality in the metastatic space. I completely agree. And Josh, one thing I will mention before uh, we move on is uh, I will mention very briefly about the TRIBE study now, the TRIBE study is a much larger study. It's a phase three randomized control trial examining Folfoxiri plus bevacizumab versus Folfiri in patients with unresectable metastatic colorectal cancer. But they did have the rates of R0 resection as a secondary endpoint. Again, adding to the collective information that's out there on this topic, but also potentially adding to the confusion, is that Folfoxiri did have a higher rate of R0 resection at 15%, but it was only slightly higher because Folfiri also managed an R0 resection of 12%. So we've talked in Olivia a lot about Folfox and Oxaliplatin-based regimens, but adding Folfiri in as an additional option will really muddy the waters further. So Folfoxiri Consist, fairly consistently seems to come out on top uh, across a lot of these trials compared to doublet. But there is still not that knockout punch. There's still not that seminal trial that once and for all answers the question. Yeah, it's an interesting point to bring up from the TRIBE trial, Michael, and I know we're not talking specifically about this, that while there was a slightly higher R0 resection rate, the other things to talk about this trial is that if you look in the just the metastatic category, there is a quite a higher overall survival rate versus the fol theory and bevacizumab. Of course, as Michael so eloquently put, toxicity is something you do have to be careful with when you're using a triplet regimen of any variety from a toxicity profile, but we will leave diving into TRIBE for another episode as it's quite a good discussion point and something that I think deserves its own platform. Without further ado, Andrew, would you like to take it up a notch and talk to us about your trial? Yeah, thanks, Josh. Um, so the it's 
funny you mentioned tribe. The group that did the tribe study um, is an Italian group uh, who also did the study I'm about to talk about. Now, this is an older one by the, um, and excuse my pronunciation, Grupo Oncologico Nord-Ovest. And as mentioned by yourself, it was published in 2007. You can think of this as a precursor to the trials mentioned, Olivia and Tribe, in that they looked at um, unresectable metastatic colon and rectal cancer. And they looked to compare the efficacy of Folfoxiri with uh, Folfiri. So this is a phase three randomized control trial. November 2001 to April 2005 was when recruitment happened from 15 Italian centers and 244 patients were enrolled. So a relatively small phase three study. I think something that's important to note when looking back at these old trials is that um, although the names of the regimens might be familiar, um, the exact composition, um, particularly with respect to Fulfiri, and also the kind of surgery that we're doing two decades ago, um, is not necessarily the same as what we do now. So keep that in mind when um, we go into the results of the study. A bit more about inclusion criteria. They had patients aged 18 to 70, uh, between ECOG 0 and 2, but they also allowed some older patients aged 71 to 75 with ECOG of 0 to 1. They allowed for some adjuvant chemotherapy, but only fluoropyrimidines, and that had to be completed at least six months prior to uh, recruitment for this trial. And the primary endpoint they were interested in was objective response, and the secondary endpoints were progression-free survival, overall survival, post-chemotherapy R0 resection, safety, and quality of life data. To expand on the point, made. Folfiri in this trial was given with a irinotecan dose of 180 milligrams per meter squared, which is what we're familiar with. But they previously used a different method of bolusing and infusing the fluoropyrimidine. And they gave the 5-FU at 600 milligram per meter squared, uh, sorry, 400 milligrams per meter squared boluses for day one and day two of each cycle, and also 600 milligram per meter squared infusions over 22 hours for day one and day two. So this is a higher bolus dose, but a lower um, infusion dose than what we would give an overall lower uh, volume of 5-FU chemotherapy than what we would give now with our modified Fulfiri regimen. Uh, but the, the full Foxeri regimen is something that we would give today. So with respect to baseline characteristics, uh, things to note in terms of differences between the two arms, there was a greater proportion of rectal cancers in the full Foxeri arm. And uh, this is back in the day where the emphasis wasn't made to distinguish between left and right-sided tumors. And we know that the uh, location of the primary has some prognostic impact. And of course, similarly, RAS testing wasn't done and so you had, in the full foxerium, 66% of patients with colon cancer, 34% uh, with rectal cancer, whereas in the forferium, you had a proportionate lower number of patients with 22% having rectal cancer. Um, they both had similar amounts of prior adjuvant therapy at 24%. And in terms of the burden of metastatic disease, similar again in terms of number of organs involved uh, with about half being only one organ involved and about 32 to 34% having liver-only metastases, which was even in both groups. They did look to try and quantify the 
degree or the, the burden of liver involvement. And they did this by distinguishing those who had less than 25 or, or those with 25% or greater of liver involvement. And that was matched between the two groups with about a third of patients having less than a quarter of their liver involved. Um, so with those limitations in mind, looking at the outcomes of the data, so the primary endpoint being objective response rate, Folfox Siri had a benefit with a 66% response rate over Folfiri at 41%. The breakdown of this is that eight patients had complete response in the Folfox Siri arm, six in the Folfiri arm, partial response of 58 in the Folfox Siri and 35 in the Folfiri arm. And this was consistent with what was externally validated um, compared to the investigator's assessment. So we have a greater objective response rate. Does that lead to better outcomes longer term following resection? Uh, and in this study, yes, it did show that there was both a progression-free survival as well as an overall survival benefit when using full Foxeri. They had a median progression-free survival of 9.8 months as opposed to 6.9 months. And in terms of overall survival, the median was 22.6 compared to 16.7. So I think we can say there's a benefit numerically. There's a benefit statistically um, with significant p-values. Something to note in this trial, I think the numbers that we're seeing in terms of overall survival seem to be a bit lower than what we're seeing today. And I think that has to do with two decades worth of experience now in the way we're giving chemo, tolerating side effects, and also the experience of the surgeons uh, and the outcomes there, which weren't explored in too much detail in this particular trial. Um, something that was documented though was the R0 resection rate, and that was 15% in the Fulfoxeriam and 6% in the Fulfiri group. Uh, and they looked at the subgroup of patients with liver-only metastases and found that those uh, with Folfoxiri did better with an R0 resection rate of 36% as opposed to 12%, keeping in mind this was a subgroup analysis that wasn't intended as a statistical outcome in the methodology of the trial initially. We know that in colorectal cancer, it's important to try and give the three cornerstones of the chemotherapy, which is fluorouracil with leucovorin, um, and oxaliplatin and arenatecan. So what's left then for patients after fulfoxiri? They, they looked at uh, second-line treatments, and the breakdown was those patients who managed to get to second-line in the fulfoxiri arm, that's about 76% of people, and in the fulfoxiri arm, that's 73%. The median study follow-up was 18 months. So for anyone wondering, well, maybe that's just because the study follow-up wasn't quite long enough. The median study follow-up was 18 months, and the median survival was uh, just over 18 months. So I think it was sufficient for um, this, even though, again, it's not a primary or secondary outcome. Uh, understandably, you didn't give too much Folfox after Folfox series, so only about 12% of patients had Folfox series. And as you might expect, people find it difficult to decide what kind of chemo to give and uh, in terms of the other options, it was sort of split across the board. So specifically those with second-line Fulfoxiri treatment, they either gave Fulfiri, 22%, Fulfoxiri again, 14%, mitomycin, 14%, cetuximab, 2%, and other chemotherapy at 14%. And with the Fulfiri group, 67% of patients went on to have Fulfox. None had Fulfoxiri. Toxicity is important. As um, Michael mentioned, this is... Um, 
what you'd sort of expect with Four Fox series. So nothing new. I just want to say that, of course, neurotoxicity with oxaliplatin in Four Fox series was significantly higher than not giving a neurotoxic agent in Fulfiri. And also the rates of neutropenia were increased. And we know that in a few other trials, the rates of febrile neutropenia were also increased. So um, echoing on from what was mentioned earlier, this is a more toxic regimen uh, than your Fulfiri uh, chemo doublet. And it is worth bearing that in mind when selecting the patient. Andrew, thanks so much for a brilliant summarization of another interesting trial with some, again, probably more questions than answers. I had some questions though, which I do love to pose. Um, And then we might have a bit of a round table conversation. We'll put it to the floor. My first question is, you mentioned that for theory, the regiment used back in 2001 when they started recruiting is different to that of today. Do you think that if you had used today's regiment, when it comes to the fluorouracil dosing, would you see a better or worse outcome if compared to Folfoxiri? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we can look at the more recent trials that have compared this sort of similar thing, Folfoxiri and Folfiri, and look at the objective response rates uh, and and also the progression-free survival rates. Certainly, we have found that giving modified Folfiri is a better way to go than the old style full theory. Um, and the new trials or the more recent trials that are done now have used um, a modified full theory regimen. Uh, comparing to tribe, the response rates seem similar and the progression-free survival seems similar, but the overall survival is um, superior in tribe at 26 months. Mind you, this is in combination with bevacizumab. But also, things have changed, not just the way chemo is given, um, the, again, the quality of surgery and the way we manage toxicities has improved. Um, so I'd, I'd like to think yes, but I can't give you numerical, you know, um, statistically significant answers to, to prove that point. And we'd have to look at other trials to confirm that. That being said, um, it is sobering that um, with a time gap, between Gono and Tribe, that the objective response rate hadn't really improved. Uh, I, I know tr- cross-trial comparisons are dirty and you shouldn't really do it, but the chemo itself isn't drastically different. I think that's one takeaway um, we can take from that. And my next question is, if someone has had, let's say, Folfoxiri in a potentially resectable colorectal cancer, you've removed the liver metastases and it's been 18 months and they have now recurred. You did talk about subsequent lines of therapy. What would your choice be? And could you explain to our listeners, would you use a similar regimen with similar active ingredients? (laughs) Active chemotherapy is probably a better term. Or would you try to look for something else? That's a really good question. And I think, unfortunately, the answer is there's no clear, there's no clear answer to this. There are no clear guidelines. You'd need to really have a discussion with a patient about this because there's a lot of factors that come into play. Prior toxicity, for example, whether you'd even re-challenge with oxaliplatin, you'd probably be tempted not to if you've given six months of oxaliplatin already because we know the rates of um, neurotoxicity are quite high. And... Similarly, whether or not the Fulfoxiri was even effective in the first place, um, how long between treatment and progression, 
also, of course, the functional, the performance status of the patient, um, how well they tolerated treatment initially. So that would all factor into your decision making. If they progressed on 4-Foxeri to begin with, I think you've, you're a bit stuck for options, really, in terms of chemotherapy. Had they responded initially, the purpose of giving treatment in this unresectable palliative intent setting is to try and control the disease as long as possible without introducing too many toxicities. So I think you'd be tempted to cut down either fluorouracil on its own, um, in this case, capecitabine, or in combination with maybe arenatecan. That might be a safe way to go. And not mentioned, uh, not considered in the GONA trial would be biologics, mm. but depending on left right sidedness and uh, mutation status you might consider in addition of another agent bevacizumab cetuximab panitumumab well andrew i'm i'm so glad you brought up those last three points for the last part of our conversation is going to be open to the floor and i'm going to raise a scenario of a patient and we're going to talk about some specific questions you have a 38 year old male who is presented to your clinic with oligometastatic colorectal cancer with resectable disease as per your mdt discussion how would you proceed with every one of these scenarios you throw at us josh the proviso has to be that the patient is fit and able to tolerate pretty much anything. They are in this case. So in this case, they're a very well-functioning 38-year-old, no comorbidities, ECOG zero, wants everything to try and cure their disease. So to me, the question in this particular case is whether it is worth a complete upfront resection versus perioperative chemotherapy. And... There's implied evidence in several studies that hepatectomy alone is just as good in the longer term in terms of overall survival. And we obviously know that adjuvant chemotherapy post-resection of a stage 3 colorectal cancer with no metastases is efficacious. So if the liver mets are resectable up front, as opposed to needing downstaging at all, do you simply ask the surgeons if they'd be comfortable to dive in straight away. And then once the patient is recovered and completely resected, then you jump in with a more conventional 12 cycles of Folfox in the adjuvant setting. Andrew, do you have any comments to Michael's summary? I think it's really important to take into account the surgical aspect as well as Michael was alluding to. Um, in a de novo metastatic patient, you've also got the primary to consider. And you can either take out both at the same time. You can, obviously, I'm grossly simplifying the process here, <laughs> speaking <laughs> about surgical issues as a, um, from the medical oncology standpoint. Um, you can take both out at the same time. You can um, do a stage procedure, and that might be taking the primary out first and then the liver or taking the uh, liver metastasis out first and then the primary so-called reverse sequencing. Um, and that might factor into your decision-making because they might be symptomatic from their primary or they might have somewhere in between what Michael was saying, uh, borderline resectability or, or concern that um, they might have unresectable disease at time of operation, although that might not be so clear in the imaging, the staging imaging. So with that in mind, that I think this is why you need to discuss things at an MDT this is why it, you can't ha really have a one-size-fits-all approach. From a chemotherapy perspective, if you look at the guidelines, 
um, the ASCO 2022 guidelines, NCCN and ESMO, they're all also not willing to commit to one single answer for this question. And they will leave you room to maneuver because they know it's it's more complex than that. So there are some subtle differences uh, in the way they might recommend things. So I think they can all the, the guidelines all agree that if you have someone who's able to tolerate tougher chemo, so you're typically thinking a younger patient with a good performance status and disease that you think needs some degree of downstaging, and then Folfoxiri as the chemo backbone up front sounds uh, very tempting. And we've got data and the objective response rates to help us with that decision. That's a, that's a nice analysis. To add to the complexity of this situation, when would you consider adding a monoclonal antibody? Yeah, so the data presented in Tribe and Olivia had bevacizumab. Between, between the different guidelines, there's no consensus on the benefit of bevacizumab uh, because we know it, it does add to your um, statistical endpoints, but it also adds to toxicity. And that's something you definitely need to consider when you're already given triplet chemotherapy. Um, in terms of um, addition of, uh, say, uh, an EGFR agent to triplet, uh, that, that's just um, not done. And I think it's, it was contentious with doublet chemotherapy, as Michael mentioned. The new EPOC trial um, looked at that. A double chemotherapy with cetuximab and found that actually the outcomes were worse. That wasn't emulated in all trials, but it's certainly not clear cut. And so I think the the feeling is that with left-sided, even RAS wild type disease, you wouldn't consider adding a um, anti-EGFR cetuximab or panitumumab if you were thinking of resecting their uh, metastatic disease. Then on the point, well, what about just doublet chemotherapy alone? That's certainly an option. And uh, how you how you do that, uh, whether you you do that neoadjuvantly or you do that adjuvantly, or you might even just opt to watch and wait. It, it really does depend on the patient, the MDT discussion. Um, I think it's tricky to decide with current evidence. And uh, unfortunately, that doesn't really help in terms of guiding decision-making only to say that you are more inclined to look at the patient in front of you than you are at any given paper. That's really a nice way to, I think, end our episode. This week, we have really dived into the complexities of modern-day oncology, where one rule doesn't fit all, and despite our best intentions, we don't have a study to optimise outcomes for every such scenario. And oligometastatic colorectal cancer is one of those. But I think the consensus from today is that Folfoxiri, if you have a very healthy young adult, is definitely something to consider when you look at resection rates and overall survival. But again, these are old studies and the addition of bevacizumab and the ongoing molecular profiling that oncology is moving towards, this will likely change, but it's something to keep an eye on. Of course, as Andrew and Michael said, adding biologics, you have to be careful because more harm than benefit can occur. And you want to make sure that if you are going through a cure, they get through their treatment and they have the best chances of having resectability. Moving on from that, when do you sequence the treatments? And I'm talking about surgery versus chemo versus more surgery. 
And there isn't a clear answer. And in any case such as this, your best friend will be your MDT meeting where you have your surgeons and you have your radiologists and you have that pesky MRI of the liver to have a look at the nuts and bolts of what's actually an option for your patient. Because despite the low survival rates, there are still 20% that are alive at five years. And there is a growing body of evidence that controlling oligometastatic disease can cure patients. That's a really good way to end. And we say it a lot on this show, guys, about it really is a discussion with your patient. And I know, and I've said it before, it's a bit of a cop-out when we're trying to provide definitive answers to specific questions or at very least guidance on what to do. But you can have the best treatment in the world at your fingertips. But if the patient, for whatever reason, and they're almost all valid, if the patient is not interested or not going for it, then that treatment is meaningless. So you'll have patients who are who are up for anything and really shouldn't be receiving anything and everything, and that's our job to counsel them on that. But you also have patients, and we've all we've all experienced this, you have patients who you're really keen to have treatment and they just go, nah. So it is important to have that conversation, but the main takeaways from this episode, if you take away anything is to discuss it with your colleagues, discuss it with the MDT, and generally speaking, you will be able to come to some sort of consensus and you cross your fingers and toes that it's for the best. And that's why we have consensus. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Next week, Michael, Andrew, and I will be exploring the wonderful world of castrate-resistant prostate cancer in the metastatic setting because over the last five years, there have been leaps and bounds in what's available. And I think it is something you're going to really enjoy. See you then. Bye. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com. Inquisitive Onc.